This is Young Persons Radio here on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am, as always, your host, Colby Smith. And my guest today is a music critic and journalist who writes a weekly column for Uproxx and whose books include Your Favorite Band is Killing Me, What Pop Music Rivalries Reveal About the Meaning of Life, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, and his newest, which is out today, the day we are recording this episode, is called This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A in the Beginning of the 21st Century. He's also the co-host of the podcast Rivals, Music's Biggest Feuds, and the archives for his previous podcast for KXXR, which was called Celebration Rock, are still available online. I could only, of course, be talking about Stephen Hyden. Stephen, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you. How are you doing? How are you holding up these days? You know, I'm doing well. I am, uh, you know, I feel like I'm doing better than a lot of people. I haven't gotten sick or anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, life for me has been relatively normal. So I'm, I'm just counting my blessings. Yeah, that's good. It's good, you know, when you can say, well, I'm not sick. And that's like the baseline, you know, it's like, well, hey, you're health pretty good. Important. It's true. Healthy. Don't take your health for granted, you know, even if it's not a pandemic. You have to yeah, be seriously. grateful. You wake up in the morning and uh, you're still breathing and everything feels okay. I think that that's uh, the first sign of a good day right there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm right there with you. I definitely had the like, <laughs> I definitely had the moments in the, the morning where like I, I would I would get up before my girlfriend and just kind of like, because I had to be at work earlier on online and I would just like sit, sit there and I would like clear my throat and I would just be like, oh my God, is this the beginning of the end? <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's not though it's not because you're here and you're doing this show so everything's a-okay well i gotta ask you right off the bat what do you think of these new bruce songs you know i am i think i'm just sort of taking in like the sound of mm-hmm. the songs which i like a lot you know recording an album quickly live in the studio it's not really something he's ever done at least not in terms of like just recording live you know doing it for five days and then that's it you know i mean Mm -hmm. i think in the old days he would record live in the studio but of course there'd be just tons of deliberation oh yeah multiple retakes of songs so i like him working uh in that vein i'm very curious about the the track list because there's a lot of older songs on there Mm -hmm. um you know, like Janie Needs a Shooters on there, which is um, a song that he wrote with Warren Zevon, who I, lo- I love Warren Zevon. Warren recorded that song uh, for his album, Bad Luck Streak at Dancing School, which was like, you know, that came out like 40 years ago. Or w- wait, no, I think that was actually just on his live record, um, Stand in the Fire. I don't know if he put that on a studio record. Anyway, it seems like he dug into the archives to record these songs. I'm, I'm not sure how many of them are actually new. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that he's recording with the East Street Band. It's sad that he isn't doing a tour with them. You know, with, with some of these older artists, you just wonder, like, is there going to be another East Street Band tour? You know, Seriously. Um, and it just makes me glad that I saw them three times on the last tour, which was the River Tour. Mm-hmm. And uh, in the moment, I was sort of like playing essentially the same playlist every show do i need to see it this many times but you know every show was great and in retrospect i'm I'm definitely glad i did because you know those might be the last times i i get to see the east street so it was great yeah absolutely i mean that that tour especially i feel like was a really 
it, it was kind of like the beginning of something for him that just started this like multi-year kind of retrospective phase of his career where you know particularly toward the end of that tour he was starting like the last 10 or 15 shows the first 45 minutes were all from the first two albums right yeah and and just you know playing that album in its entirety night after night and you know i think it's important that it was the river because mm-hmm. that's a record about um you know he didn't have a family at the time that he wrote that record but it, it really is about you know what it's like to have a family the uh the joys of that but also the fear of it and, mm. and the fear of losing everything i mean like you know just to hear that album in an arena and then to end that main set with rack on the highway you know which is oh, not yeah. a traditional arena rock closer by any measure you know i mean it's a right. song about you know laying in bed and looking at the love of your life and feeling that sort of existential fear that things are all going to disappear at, at some point. And, you know, he wrote that when he was you know, 30 years old. Um, and now, you know, now he was, when he did that tour, he would have been, I guess, about, you know, 65, 66 years old, mm-hmm. obviously in a much different place in his life. And, you know, you can see that come across in his book, of course, and also like in Springsteen on Broadway, which I was very fortunate to get to see. I had, ridiculously good seats for that a publicist hooked me up and i was like fourth row center okay now we're talking (laughs) bruce was you know right up in my grill and uh you know i'll never get that close to bruce springsteen i'm sure in my life i mean that that was was like that was part of the thrill of seeing that show i mean i i didn't have seats that were quite that good i was a couple rows back uh on the balcony but even from there it was just like God, like I've been in the pit at at Bruce shows, and I've never felt this close. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you could be in the back row of that theater and still be closer than you would ever be at an arena show. You know, I mean, I think that theater was maybe eleven hundred seats. I mean, it's a pretty mm-hmm. small theater, um, from what I remember. Um, yeah, I mean, I remember when I saw that show, I was. Um, just blown away by the sound of his unamplified voice you know yes. just him singing without a microphone um and not you know singing over a band um because you know, i'd never seen like his acoustic tours or anything like that I mean, no really, same here like arena or stadium rock shows um and i remember i think he was playing my hometown which I think it was like relatively early in the show. Yeah. And just the sound of his voice choked me up. Mm-hmm. You know, it was so intimate Yeah. that it was like overwhelming, you know? And uh, there were a bunch of moments like that where, you know, aside from just the emotional power of the songs and, and where they're placed in the show, I just felt like the sound of his voice in the theater yeah. was so powerful. Um, so I, I was very grateful to be able to take that in but yeah i don't know i mean i thought western stars was a really good album but that i was loved my, that one yeah that was my favorite i mean you know my favorite album of his from the past 20 years is magic by yeah like some distance um but i like western stars a lot and i appreciated how um on one hand he was really breaking away from his classic sound you know playing with this sort of like late 60s singer songwriter uh you know very lush type mm-hmm. uh, sound 
But on the, on the other hand, he was also really digging back deep into his story song side, which I love. Oh, absolutely. About, you know, that's like my favorite Springsteen <laughs> lyrics when he, because I think he's such a great writer. I think he's the best storyteller in rock history. Like mm-hmm. no one tells a story like him, I, I don't think, um, where, you know, he's making a movie in your head, you know, right. like, there's so many great Springsteen songs like that. And, um, you know, sometimes it gets away from that, like Wrecking Ball, for instance. It's not an album that has really stood up for me all that well. I, I like some songs from it, but, you know, or The Rising even, you know, which I know a lot of people love The Rising. But yeah. I just feel like those are more sort of sloganeering some mm-hmm. records. And I don't, I, I kind of like it when, and the great thing about Born in the USA, for instance, is that it's a big, shiny rock record, but there's also like tons of great storytelling songs yeah. on that album. You know, Downbound Train. I was just going to say Downbound Train, yeah. Or even like Born in the USA is a great storytelling lyric. Yes. You know, or even like, you know, you know, Glory Days. You know, people like to clown that song, you know, because it's kind of overexposed at this point, but there's, there's a great story in that mm-hmm. lyric. Um, so I really like that on, on, on Western Stars. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely excited to hear the rest of the record. I I haven't gotten a promo yet or anything, so I don't I don't know what it sounds like. Hopefully, I'll get right. one soon. Yeah, that was that was kind of my big takeaway from the first time I heard "Letter to You," which was that first song that he released a couple weeks ago. Now I was I, like, my gut reaction was not really anything to do with the song, other than like, oh wow, they finally got a good sound for the E Street Band in the studio. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I feel like. You know, I haven't really absorbed the actual songs yet. It's yeah. more about like what they sound like. And um, yeah, I mean, you know, Bruce has had problematic production, you know, throughout his yes. career, kind yeah. of up and down. Even like a record like Darkness on the Edge of Town, which is like one of my favorite albums ever, there's issues with that where like the drum sound is kind of muffled sometimes. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's like not. I, I just wrote a big thing about Tom Petty. And, yeah. and, you know, I think, and I love Tom Petty. I mean, I would probably say, you know, Springsteen is a better songwriter than Tom Petty, but like Tom Petty's records, I think generally sound a lot better than Springsteen's. Like, you know, you think of a record like Wildflowers, for instance, which is just like a perfect rock sound. I mean, it, it sounds great. And like Bruce, you know, never had that sort of naturalistic sound like a lot of his records i don't know it seems like there was always this push pull in the studio between john landau who was this formalist wanted things to sound really tight and shiny and perfect and then you had steve van zandt who was more of the garage rock guy wanted to be more sloppy and live and it seems like with the river that contrast reached its pinnacle like where maybe they're able to balance that out i mean i think bruce liked those two impulses because i think that exists within himself and you know he's looking for that kind of balance i mean for me personally i would probably veer more toward the steve van zandt side i kind of wish a lot of times that his records were a little more you know not sloppy but a little more live sounding yeah a little more freewheeling maybe yeah but you know having said all that you know, those are still amazing albums. I mean, oh, of course. You know. Yeah, totally, totally. <laughs> it's it's great, you know. Um, I do yeah, think, though, it, with, with Darkness, though, it's like, I, I don't, I can't think of a single song on that album that I don't, like, prefer a live version, though. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that's generally true of, of Springsteen. Yeah, of um, so many of those, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, there's not many songs that you would say, oh, I prefer the, uh, the studio version. You know, funnily enough, I think that, you know, because this album, I feel like, was for a long time maligned uh, as sounding dated. But I think Tunnel of Love is actually a record that sounds really good on record. Like I totally songs, agree. Like yeah. Those songs actually, that's an album where I would say I'd rather hear Tunnel of Love on the record than a live version. Um, yes. Yes. You know, uh, the title track um, or One Step Up. You know, I'd rather hear the, you know, it's funny because, again, I feel like that record for like 20 years people would knock it and they would almost right. say that that was like the beginning of his of his decline you know from that just brilliant decade plus run that he had whereas i look at it as like the cherry on the sunday of that yes. era you know it's such a mature i mean to me like that is one of my very favorite springsteen records and i and i do think mm-hmm. lyrically it's right up there with any album he ever made. Uh, yeah. I, I just think it, it might be his best written album. You know, obviously you have Nebraska in there, but you know, in a way I almost prefer, I, again, I love Nebraska, but in a way I would almost prefer Tunnel of Love because I think it's a little more grown up and 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 wise. You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's, there's such a wisdom about marriage and relationships, especially on the, the second side of that record where you go from the title track through Valentine's Day. Oh yeah, um, is such a gut punch um, and just an incredible. Honestly, like some of the best writing about marriage and long-term relationships. I think in any format, you know, totally any film or book, album. I would, you know, you know, if you've got like scenes from a marriage by Bergman over here, and you've got <laughs> you know, Tunnel of Love over here. I'm gonna take Tunnel of Love, you know, the Bergman film. I just think Bruce was he was so insightful on, on that record so mm-hmm. yeah but yeah but yeah generally speaking i think you're right I, I would probably take live versions uh you know nine times out of ten yeah years. you you said something in in uh twilight of the gods uh kind of on this note that i i want to bring up too which is that uh you are pro live album and i am too and i can never understand why people complain about them because like if it's a good one, it's just, it feels like you're there. Right. Yeah. I mean, and you know, when I say that I'm also grouping in bootlegs with that as well. Oh, sure. Not, yeah. You know, obviously official live records. I mean, I think the way, the reason they got a bad rap was that there was a period in the seventies, especially where everyone was putting out a live record, you know? I mean, if you just go back, you know, like Barry Manilow's putting out live records, and, mm-hmm. you know, like people that you wouldn't necessarily, I mean, Barry Manilow might be a great live performer. I don't really know much about <laughs> right. him, but you know what I mean? Like every, every band was putting out live records and it, I think it, there was a perception maybe that this was a way to pad out your record contract requirements. You know, like if you're contracted sure. to make six albums, just throw a live record on there and now you only have to make five records. Right. Uh, you know, it's like right. a shortcut almost. Um, so, you know, I think because there were so many live records in that era, it almost like dilutes the pool a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, where you, maybe some of the great live records of all time, they get a little obscured, but I don't know. I mean, I know for me personally, you know, when it comes to like my very favorite artists, I tend to listen to live stuff more than the studio records, like with Bob Dylan, for instance, I Definitely. listen to his legs more than his studio albums at this point. 
just because I've heard the studio, studio album so many times and like right. with, with some artists, it's like if you hear a cool bootleg and they're doing something different with the songs, it's like a way to hear the songs again right? where they feel new. Yeah, I mean, uh, Dylan that, is the king of that, right? Where it's just like you oh, listen, yeah. you listen to you listen to a bootleg from like March of nineteen ninety, and then one of like June nineteen ninety, and like the same song will sound completely different. Yeah, too. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, and even artists that don't change their songs as much as Dylan does, you know, there's something still fun about hearing a bootleg to me, where again, you have that documentary aspect of mm-hmm. a live record. Uh, where it's putting you in a certain place in time, right? That maybe you wouldn't have been able to go to otherwise. You know, I, totally. You know, like I, I love the Grateful Dead. If I'm listening to uh, a show from 1973, I'm enjoying the music, but I'm also enjoying the crowd noise, enjoying the ambiance of the room. You know, because you know I didn't get to see the Dead in 1973, but like right. this is the closest I'm ever going to get to experiencing that so yeah i mean and, and that's something i mean you get that from albums sometimes too i mean albums definitely give a broken time and place but i don't know i just think you get that more from a live record than totally from a studio record. i think there's a nice thing too about live albums and 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 bootlegs especially is if you're new to an artist or you're like getting into an artist with like a really big back catalog that there's kind of like a it's like a a guide book almost into like what are the songs that like like I was always really interested in like when I was first getting into Bruce in high school, just like which songs would show up in the, in the, in like the encore of, of the bootlegs, you know, like, like that was a way to like point to, okay, like Rosalita means a lot to people. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they can function as almost like the greatest hits albums in a way. Um, and I know like for me, a lot of times if there's an artist I don't know all that well, I'll, and if they have a live record, I'll, I'll, I'll listen to that first because it is like a sampler sometimes of their entire career. Mm-hmm. It's not the studio cuts, but it's you know giving you a taste of what they do in a slightly different format, which I think is is really cool. I mean, I think with Bruce too, like you know, he was really good at uh, you know having a narrative to his concerts, right. where you felt like you're going to start here and the songs are going to take you on a journey and there's somehow almost, I think he put a lot of thought into his set list. Um, mm-hmm. and so sometimes hearing songs from three or four different albums in one set list can change what those songs mean, uh, which I think is really fascinating too. Um, mm-hmm. Especially like those like late seventies shows. I mean like that 78 tour for oh my God. darkness tour. Um, it's so incredible. And like, you know, that album, uh, the album is one thing. I mean, the album, I think Bruce called it his samurai album. You know, it's mm. like this loner type record, a guy, you know, kind of on a journey by himself. It's a journey into self almost really. Uh, right. You're trying to figure out who you are. But then those songs, when he played them live, it just had a much different feel to them. It's almost like on the record, it's a very claustrophobic album. Yeah. Whereas live, it's so much more cathartic. Um, and I think they're both great for what they are. But again, it just kind of, when you have an artist like that, who isn't just sort of running through the paces on a concert stage, but is actually using the concert stage as an extension of his art. Right. You know, to, to expand on the music, to 
give it another meaning, you know, then you have something really special. And I really would argue too that if you're not listening to the live stuff, you're, you're missing a big part of the story. Totally. Um, a lot of people, I think, make the mistake of assessing artists just by like their their studio records. And I think when you do that, um, you know, especially for people that are touring musicians and they play a lot and they're doing something interesting on stage. Um, it's just incomplete, you know, uh, you, and uh, you may find that a lot of your assumptions are wrong about certain artists if you aren't <laughs> looking at that stuff. I think that's certainly true of Bruce. I mean, there's a lot of people I know who aren't into Bruce at all. And, like, I try to talk to them about it, and they're like, I can't, I can't do it. Yes. And I really think that it's because they've heard maybe the same dozen songs on the radio, and they're just sick of those songs. Yeah. And it's like, well... You gotta listen to the live stuff, man. But, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, that's what every that's what every hardcore fan says about yeah, everything. Exactly. So you know, it, it's a hard case to make sometimes. Yeah, lock in, put the headphones on, settle in for no nukes, seventy nine. Right, settle in for like three hours. Of, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Of <laughs> yeah, I I feel like for me the the only the only criticism of Springsteen that I've ever heard that even like makes like any sense to me is that he's like too wholesome that he like doesn't represent anything like subversive or like countercultural which i feel like like i get why people think that like he's not the rolling stones like he doesn't just like evoke danger in the way that like if you're coming to rock music like for that like you're probably not gonna get it from him um it's just that it does not like that criticism just like doesn't it doesn't track with me at all just like it doesn't matter in terms of go ahead sorry well, I mean, I get it in terms of what his image is and what um, his, I guess, presence is on the radio. You know, right. again, if you're judging him by a handful of hits and you're looking at him as like the iconic figure uh, that, I mean, at this point, he's like a national monument. You know, yes. I mean, there's nothing all that controversial about him. I mean, there's people, I guess, who don't like him probably, you know, I would guess maybe more on the right. Although I mean, lots of Republicans like him. I mean, I think, you know, even though he is this outspoken populist mm-hmm. um, for the left, I mean, a lot of, I mean, a lot of people on the right like him. I mean, because I think with any star like that, you just take what you like and you ignore the rest. You know, yeah. I think people of all sorts do that. But I think with Bruce, I mean, you dig into his songs and he's writing about murderers, writing about criminals, writing about like obsessive people on the edge in a lot of his songs. And like, even in some of his biggest songs, I mean, like Hungry Heart is like the obvious example here. You listen to that song superficially and it's just this sort of like throwback sounding pop song. And it's like happy go lucky with a bright and shiny chorus and we can all sing along to it. And, you know, maybe you, if you're a detractor, you're just like, oh, this is just like some saccharine pop song. But you listen to the lyrics, and it's a song about a guy who leaves his wife uh, right. in the lurch, and he's and he's drifting through all these different situations because he can't ever be happy with his life. You know, he there's a sense of rootlessness in that song. It's like he says, like a river that don't know where it's flowing. I took a wrong turn and I just kept going. I mean, you can just hear that lyric and go, oh, what a what a happy-go-lucky ne'er-do-well, you know, like the, <laughs> you know, like this is the, the lovable anti-hero, but right. you dig past the superficiality of, of that and go past just the, the, the delivery device. I mean, I think that song is incredibly subversive, 
you know, and uh, I mean, born in the USA, like that's an incredibly subversive song. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, um, Glory Days even I think is a subversive song. It's a song that you hear that keyboard riff, and it just evokes instant nostalgia for you know baseball and apple pie and you know seeing a pretty girl and talking to her at the bar all that sorts of stuff mm. but it's really a song about like the pitfalls of nostalgia the the idea of like living in the past as your present falls apart you know i mean that's what that song is and i think you don't have to even dig that deep in the lyrics to hear that you know right, um, right. but you know, but again i mean i think springsteen does that over and over again in his songs where he's giving you a face that might be really appealing and charming, but underneath it is a lot of disturbing stuff. Right. Right. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, and I think that that makes his songwriting as rich as it is, but it can also cause people who maybe aren't thoughtful about it to just sort of put it in a box and say, well, it's just this sort of corny American rock music. Yeah. Uh, but you know that's fine. Yeah, uh, and maybe the rest of us who love it can just sort of laugh at those people and say, "I get the secret point," you know, and that's fine. You're just not smart enough to get it, you know. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I—that's one—that's one of the things I love about Bruce. I mean, I think that's just such that's such a genius thing in his work. Absolutely. Uh, one one more question about him before uh, we kind of switch gears a little bit, uh, which is, I believe you got to see him speak at South by Southwest in 2012. Am I right? Yeah, I did. So this, this I feel like, has kind of taken on its own kind of mythic place in his kind of late career uh, uh, sort of body of work, I guess, and that it's like the people who were there just like talk about it as like this incredible, you know, kind of like glimpse of his process. And I wonder if you sort of felt similar similarly about it, which is that you were kind of getting a window into his into his work that maybe we hadn't gotten up until that point. Oh, I didn't know it had that reputation. I mean, I mean, I think I wrote about it in Twilight of the Gods. I think it's in that book. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing that, and um, I mean, it was just amazing to see him again, similar to Springsteen on Broadway, like in a non-arena context. You know, like that was the first time I'd ever seen him, just like in a conference room. You know, and I wasn't sitting as close to him as I was at Springsteen on Broadway, but I was like fairly close. You know, I was probably about like fifteen rows back or something, and. Um, I mean, I'm trying to remember exactly what he even said there. I don't know if he was so much talking about like songwriting or how he makes records. I just remember the crux of his speech being very encouraging of, of musicians Mm -hmm. and, and I think putting himself in the lineage of like all the other musicians who are in South by Southwest is just being this guy who, um, is going to go out on stage and give it his all, you know, right. like he was definitely playing that role in that speech, which is a huge part of his iconography, you know, that yeah. he's just this regular guy. And, you know, it's, I mean, that's something that his detractors will ding him on too, that he's not this, you know, that he's obviously a hugely successful rock star millionaire many times over. But I always thought that's kind of a BS criticism because it's like do we fault robert de niro for not being a gangster you know or (laughs) you know what i mean like like there's an element i think to being a performer where you are an actor 
he is an actor to some degree when he's delivering his songs. He's like Martin Scorsese and Robert De Niro put together because he's mm. writing the material, he's directing it, and he's also embodying it on, on stage. And to simply say that like this guy isn't actually working class is such an anti-art argument you know yeah. it's not a matter of him actually being that thing it's how well do you embody it how mm-hmm. well do you make people believe that this is something that is real right. and also you know most important of all applies to their own life you know like he's performing these songs ultimately so that we think about ourselves you know right and uh and he's obviously very effective at that. I mean, obviously, he's he's pulled that off many times over. So <laughs> I just remember him talking about things like that. But honestly, I mean, you know, it was just being able to be in a room with him that blew me away. I, he could have said, he could have read the, you know, freehold phone book and I probably <laughs> right. would have been blown away by it, you know. So, yeah, I think, yeah, just having him in front of me talking, I thought was, totally. was cool enough no matter what he was saying. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to back up a little bit and just say, uh, you know, that I, I like many people, I'm sure, started reading you at uh, at Grantland when you were kind of reliably writing about rock music there. And I, I think the first piece I read of yours was about Empire Burlesque, or like it was like an album that was coming out that was like a bunch of different artists covering Empire Burlesque songs. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was a tribute album. To, I think it was like a tribute album to 80s Dylan. Right, that's right. That's right. Yeah. So, the, so the idea was to, you know, was to basically, in essence, I guess, rescue songs from that mm-hmm. period that maybe people had overlooked because the production is kind of weird and his performances are, are a little off. Although there's a lot of albums from the 80s that I like a lot by him. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I mean, Oh Mercy. With Dylan, oh Mercy, Infidels. Um, I mean, I think Shot of Love is like has some really great moments on it um i mean again like dylan is someone who not only do you have to listen to the live records but all the outtakes that have been released on various collections add so much context and like i've you know i i I was talking with other dylan fans online about like whether he's going to be doing another box set this year because he's been doing bootleg series box sets Mm -hmm. a lot and we all agreed that like a mid eighties box set would be amazing and it will never happen because it's like not commercial at all. Right. I don't know anyone outside of hardcore Dylan fans that would want that. But honestly, you know, he was recording like a lot of great stuff in that time that he didn't put out. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's more interesting than like going back to a period where we all know it's great already. Yeah. And you know, cause like that was what was so good. Like he put out that, christian era box set uh, a couple years ago mm-hmm. and i had already kind of come around on that era but like that box set i thought was so great because it, I mean, there's all this live stuff on there it really showed like how great his band was and like how like beautiful his melodies were at that yeah. time even if even if like you, you're put off by some of the lyrics which can be pretty hectoring at times or or pedantic sure. um musically you know, his band is so good. He's, I think he sang really well in that, in that period. And yeah. yeah. And you know, just like the melodies on songs like Covenant Woman or, you know, When He Returns, you know, all those songs, it's really lovely. It's a really lovely time. So, 
you know, you know, the thing I've learned with Dylan is never to dismiss anything because right. in like 10 years, it could end up being my favorite. Help. Definitely. Yeah. Even um, like Christmas from the heart, I will never make, I can't make jokes about, well, maybe I would make some jokes about Christmas from the heart, but I feel like, you know, in 10 years that there's a chance that I could be like, oh, this is like as good as John Wesley Harding, you know, yes, I just didn't realize yes. it at the time. Yes. Uh, what we needed all along was his cover of Must Be Santa. Exactly. You know, and because, <laughs> you know, Dylan, he's ahead of us. He's a, He is, you know, to me, he's like my favorite. He's my favorite writer. He's my favorite musician, favorite mm. singer, favorite everything. So I just think, you know, he's just ahead of me. And, you know, there's things of his that, yeah, like I, for many years, I didn't think Street Legal was that great of a record. And now yeah. I think it's a masterpiece. Like I think, you know, there's so many just brilliant songs on that record. So, yeah, I just, I, I, I will never dismiss anything. I, you know, like I still don't really get the standards records that he did. Like those records are still like, I put them on and I just find them to be really sleepy. But <laughs> yes, sleepy is a really good word for what they are. I think. <laughs> but we're wrong if we think that. I really, yeah, I, I'm, I'm just, I just know there's going to be a moment in my life where I'm going to become obsessed with those albums and they're, I'm going to realize that they're, they were actually great all along. So oh, I yeah, look 100%. forward to that. I mean, I never, I just, going, just going back to what you were saying before about the bootleg series, it's just like, I never thought about self-portrait at all until that box set came out. And I was like, right. this is so, I mean, there's some really interesting stuff in that collection. Yeah, I always liked that album. I, I always thought self-portrait was like such a, just a, I mean, it's a record only Dylan would make. I mean, it was so right. bizarre. And like, like him doing the boxer and like double tracking his voice. You know, and like right. this sort of like Ersatz, Simon and Garfunkel thing. It's like, what are you doing? But um, yeah, that, that bootleg series release, um, there's just so many. I mean, it's like top to bottom. Great. I mean, there, yeah. I, there's so many just beautiful things on that record. So yeah, I don't know. I just think he's a guy that uh, he's so brilliant that even when he does things that are bizarre, it's mm. like I'd rather hear his bizarre experiments than most people's like great records. Yeah, you know? I 100% agree. Like, and, and there are, and, and you know, and I, I, I think that's true of like, and there's other people you could say that about too. Like, like I think the very best people, like, if they fail, it's still worth hearing you know mm. like because they don't make a boring record like dylan when he misses they're not boring you know like when like under the red sky there's some really yeah. weird songs on that record and i'm where you listen to it and you're just like what in the hell are you doing yes. but it's not boring it's not boring you yeah. know it's like and i'd rather think about that record than a lot of other people's really good records, you know, like, sure. give me them, you know, so uh, the, it's a special thing to be able to fail in an interesting way, you know, it, yeah. that's, that's reserved for just the real greats. Yeah, absolutely. What I'm, I'm going to ask you a question that I know the answer to, which is what did you think of his most recent one? I loved it. I, me too. I, I, I thought it was great. Um, and um, I mean, that's another one where you're like murder most foul. Uh, 17 minute song, no chorus, really no melody to it. Um, talking about the Kennedy assassination, like how does yes. this work? And um, I remember hearing it for the first time and just being riveted by it. Mm -hmm. I, I thought it was incredible. And look, 
I'm sure there's people listening to this who can't stand Dylan, and they're probably like, oh, I gotta listen to these two Dylan fans just going <laughs> yes. on about how the 17-minute JFK assassination song is great. You know, like how awful is this to listen to? But <laughs> I, you know, I, what can I say? I just I marvel at him and how he can continue to do things like this at his age, where. I feel like most people in his position are just trying to re- evoke things that they've already done. You know, they're trying to like mm-hmm. recreate some other period of their career to remind you of why you once liked them. And I don't think Bob Dylan's ever done that. You know, he's right. always just done his own thing. That's why like the standards records, for instance, even though I didn't really get them when they came out, like I love that he did it because mm-hmm. it's not something I ever would have predicted that like, Bob Dylan is singing Bing Crosby songs. Seriously. Who would have thought that? (laughs) Um, But I have no doubt that it's like a genuine uh, impulse on his part. You know, he did this because he wanted to do it and it was important to him. And And I will say, I saw Dylan on his 2019 tour and his voice sounded better than it had in a really long time. Mm -hmm. And I think singing those songs, those old classic, you know, Tin Pan Alley, standards yeah i think that had a had an effect on him as a singer like he's he's still tinkering with what he's doing he's still like finding new ways to express himself and uh yeah i mean what can i I, again i you know he's he's the best of the best he's yeah he's william shakespeare of our time you know i i he is the guy who is going to be remembered from yes this era we will all be gone but Bob Dylan will be in the history books. Uh, so I'm I'm just glad to be around him in some respect and to still get his work. <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, as far as like seeing him live goes, do you like go in on the like, oh, I've, I, I make sure I see him every year. Like I see him in multiple cities. Like is the count high on that one? Because he's one that people like follow around still. Yeah. I mean, I've seen him like maybe a dozen times. I mean, there yeah. was a long time where I hadn't seen him. Mm-hmm. I I was, I started seeing him like in the late nineties going into like the early aughts. And that Which was is a great I, period for. Yeah. I mean, that was show, when yeah. uh, uh, Larry Campbell was in the band along with Charlie Sexton. Like the, the and I think I'm trying to remember who was before Sexton. Cause I think the first time I saw him, someone else was playing guitar. Mm-hmm. It was also really good. But that was a band I tried to see as much as I could. I thought they were always killing it. And it, it was so exciting to see him at that time. And then, after, you know, and then like getting like the late aughts, I saw him a few times and it was like, it was pretty boring. I, I, I just didn't really get into it. So there was like several years where, I did, where he'd, be around, he'd be around and I didn't go see him. Right. And, I, and I started going again. I kind of made this thing i think it was like around the time i started writing twilight of the gods that i was like well you know this is bob dylan you know who who knows how much longer he'll be around i mean i yeah go see him i should make a commitment to see him anytime i can Mm -hmm. um, because i'll feel i'll feel terrible uh if i felt like there were times i could see him and i and i didn't go see him i mean i kind of feel like that way with tom petty like i've seen petty a bunch and i saw him on his last tour um, but there were times I think where I could have gone to see him and I didn't. And it's like, sure. I only, I saw him three times and it was always great. But you know, like when someone's gone like that, so and, and again, like Petty, he's not quite on the Dylan level, but I mean, I love Petty so much. Yeah. It just makes me sad that I was like, oh, I could have seen him like 
point in 2009, and I didn't. Yeah. Or 2005. I, I could have gone to that show, and I didn't. It just makes me sad because uh, there's no more Tom Petty shows. You know, you you only have your memories. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I think some people you just have to commit yourself. Yeah. To following as much as you can. Definitely. Because you know, we're all these are all precious, fragile resources. They're not going to be around forever. Right. I mean, I remember there was a period, I, I feel like you don't hear this as much anymore, but you know, like anytime the Rolling Stones would announce that they were having a new tour, people would sort of roll their eyes or make jokes about it. Like, oh, why are these guys still on the road? And, you know, I feel like now maybe people don't do that because so many rock stars have died. Right. And there is maybe more of a realization that at some point you won't be able to see these people. Like they'll be gone forever so like why wouldn't you want them to tour you know i don't care if mick jagger's a billionaire and he doesn't need the money right mick jagger's one of the greatest you know yes. musicians rock music rock singer songwriters of, of all time and you know why would you why, why would you want to go see this guy you know like yeah this is a precious resource i gotta tell you uh, steven to, your your chapter on it. them in in twilight of the gods made me finally be like you know what i'm gonna do it i'm gonna finally go in on the rolling stones and i am loving every minute of it i'm like listening to some girls right now just like just like all that stuff in the 70s i feel like i completely slept on for like most of my music listening life and oh man i don't know what i was doing it's so much fun yeah, there's something about, you know, I feel like the Stones um, are, like, weirdly underrated in a way. I, it's all, I don't yeah, know. it's like, they're, it's like it it's is. too obvious, almost. Like, they're so yeah, big, or, it's like you don't think about them. Well, and I think, too, that they've been old men for so long that I think for, you know, a couple generations, you know, they just think of Mick Jagger as being, like, a 50-year-old guy or a 60- or a 70-year-old guy. Right. And, um, you know, cause really, I mean, in terms of like classic Stones records, it's like Tattoo You in 81 is probably like the last like really great record. I mean, they've, mm-hmm. they've, I think they put out some like good records after that, but nothing you're going to put on like the A-list really. Sure. So that's like 40 years ago now, you know, and they're still like an active band. So I think that hurts them a little bit in the way that, you know, like the Beatles they ended in 70, you know, it doesn't have the same, you know, they're sort of fixed in time um, as being this like perfect band. But I love that about the Stones. I like that their discography isn't perfect. And there's like a lot of Stones records that I think were maligned in the moment that you go back and you're like, wow, this is actually really great. Like Goat's Head Soup, for instance, which just got reissued as part of a big box set. That's a set night record from 1973 you know, it came right after XL on Main Street. So, like, people, of course, said, rightly, that it's not as good as XL on Main Street, and it's not as good as, like, the records that came before that. Because the Stones from, like, 68 to 72 were arguably the greatest rock and roll band of all time. I mean, like, their run in that period is insane. And then Gotetsu comes along, and it's not as good, so then people say the Stones are finished. And then you listen to it, 50 years later and you're like oh holy shit like i wish more bands made a record as good as ghost head soup this is amazing it's, it's so a great good. record uh so you know and that happens now with legacy bands you know like you know a band that has been around for a long time you know eventually we take them for granted and they do something that is maybe like a b plus record and not an a record mm-hmm. and people just walk away and they write it off 
And it's not until years later when you don't have the baggage of the right. time that you're able to just kind of appreciate it for what it is and go, well, this is still like really great. <laughs> like, oh yeah. I felt like that way B about the plus uh, stones record is like an a record for most people. I yes, mean, you know, yes. like I would take a B plus record by them over, you know, anyone else's a really for sure. Um, I felt that so, way yeah. about the new, the new strokes album that came out this year. I was like, I really like this. I think, I think the general feeling on that is that I, I feel like a lot of people like that record. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I was defending albums like Angles, you know. Sure, yeah. We're, we're kind of taking a dump on. I, I still think that's a really – I mean, the, the Strokes are definitely, like, uh, you know, I was going to say a modern band. I mean, they've been around for 20 years. I mean, they're not that modern, but they're modern compared to these classic right. rock bands. Yeah. You know, they are one of the bands, I think, that has that same thing, like where they, they make a lot of albums that, like, are not – perfect and like you could definitely sort of see the up and down nature of the records but i actually think that makes them age pretty well i think all their albums are like pretty interesting and mm -hmm. they have that again that sort of old school rock band ruggedness to them that i yeah. think adds a lot to their image you know um whereas you know there's, there's a lot of bands that are more consistent than the strokes but aren't as lovable to mm -hmm. me. like their their flaws make them more lovable Totally, uh, yeah. In the same way that, you know, like, same is true of all these classic rock people that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I would love to kind of uh, jump forward. Well, I guess if we're talking about The Strokes, it's not really a jump forward anymore. Uh, but go ahead and talk about your book, which again, came out today. Uh, this isn't happening. Radio has today in the beginning of the 21st century. Um, I'm really excited to read this thing and, 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 and go pick it up because I, I read the first chapter on, on Pitchfork when they did the book club thing a little while ago. Yeah, and it's such an exciting way to like set that scene. And there was a a, a review of it on on Billboard, I believe. And there there's a quote from you in it that I think is so uh, a nice kind of way into this, which is just like it says, "All the things that we take for granted now felt new and exciting then, like reading the opinions of random strangers and learning about the music that way." Which is kind of talking about like message board culture, which was like really a, a, a thriving sort of on the internet for like from the early aughts until. I mean, what, probably like 2010, maybe somewhere around there? Yeah, I um, mean, really like pre-social media, I would say. Right. I mean, so much about the internet now just seems pre and post social media, where the internet before social media, it just seems like a totally different place. And in a way, it seems more wide open mm -hmm. than it does now. It's, you know, like I think at the time of like Kid A, for instance, there was this idea that the internet could be this like utopian place, I think for people that like you could go there and you could meet other people who were like you, even if you were like in a town where there were no other people like you, you know, like this right. is a place where you could be yourself and connect with the, the larger world. And that it could also be a place outside of like corporate culture, you know, that this would be a place that where people could just set up their own website and other people would come to it and it wouldn't have to be this, you know, corporate media type thing or, and of course now things just seem so much more consolidated and yeah. that vision of the internet, especially from like a media standpoint, it, it just seems like it's over, you know, the, the, and, but at the time of, of, of kid a, I mean, I think that really was a possibility and I think radio had embraced that. I mean, radio had famously, made Kid A available to stream uh, before the album came out. And, mm -hmm. and not only did they stream the album, which at the time was a pretty revolutionary 
thing. I mean, there were other people doing it, but like there wasn't that many people on the level of Radiohead doing it. And right. I mean, certainly not for an album that was as anticipated as Kid A was. Um, but not only did they allow it to stream, but they also democratized the widget that they streamed the album on. So it wasn't like Rolling Stone had the exclusive or MTV had the exclusive. Anyone with a blog could take that widget and put it on their website. So I think there was mm. like, I forget the exact number. I think it was like hundreds of, of, of sites that streamed Kid A. So, you know, you can just see that like, if you're coming from a world where there's, you know, a handful of print magazines that are controlling the discourse for music in America. Mm. And then you go on the internet and there's like just this huge pl like plurality of voices uh, talking about music. And you have things like Pitchfork, for instance, which was already around, but like a lot of people didn't know about it. And right. their review of Kid A ended up being really famous. It was a 10.0 review. The prose was like way over the top. It was super purple. Uh, you know, it read like something from like the late 60s, you know, typewriting. It was, you know, just very convoluted. Lots of like tortured metaphors. It, I think it was a review that even at the time a lot of people made fun of. But it was also, I think, exciting for people because it was so effusive. Mm -hmm. And, it, you know, Pitchfork wasn't afraid in the moment to call Kid A like this masterpiece you know or this uh you know this landmark album when a lot of the you know so-called professional press uh were pretty skeptical of kid a even the ones that liked it they weren't unequivocal in their praise i, I think right. there was a sense of i think in america radio had got the benefit of the doubt from a lot of publications sure who maybe you didn't really get the record but um you know, they're going to say that it was good because it was Radiohead. Whereas in England, they didn't get any benefit of the doubt. And they were really hammered for making what was deemed like a pretentious um, boondoggle, essentially. You know, that they were just <laughs> trying way too hard to not be a guitar man. Sure. Um, so, yeah, all those things were in the, were in the air at that time. And it's interesting with Kid A because now we talk about it as being this like dystopian record people always use that word dystopian to describe kid a that it was this record about sort of the dangers of technology and how that was going to come into play in the 21st century right but i don't think those things became clear until later you know it wasn't a dystopian place online in 2000 mm -hmm. it is now in 2020 yes. <laughs> and you know and, and and that's one of the reasons why that album resonates because i think it's a record that makes more sense now than it did in 2000. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're just talking about like the, the difference. It's easy to forget, I think, because this really is not that long ago that we're talking about in terms of, in terms of the, uh, you know, the popular culture. Um, what well, it is and it isn't. I mean, yeah, yeah like in terms, you know, 20 years isn't that long in some ways, but like, if you think about like when that album came out, it was October of 2000. It was a month before the Bush v. Gore election, which mm -hmm. George Bush is going to win by basically by a Supreme Court announcement. So you have a you have a situation like where the guy who didn't win the popular vote becomes president. And in 2000, that was still a novelty like that hadn't right. really happened in the modern era. Now it's almost like we expect it to happen. Yeah. And then, you know, the next year you have 9-11 mm -hmm. and then you have, you know, the wars in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
and you have all these things. I mean, one of the things I write in the book, I, I call Kid A the overture for the 21st century because I think that when that album came out, it really wasn't the 21st century yet. You know, like the things that were going to define the like these 20 years hadn't really occurred. You know, like, you know, the internet was not really a mainstream thing yet. You know, we didn't have this destabilizing election essentially which i think really kicked off this paranoia that has been pervasive in the last 20 years this idea of like not being able to trust reality essentially or there or the idea of there being dueling realities um i think that really begins during the bush years um to being like this sort of commonly felt thing and you know and that's reiterated with 9-11 and then reiterated again when you have these wars that are started based on reports of WMD that end up to not actually be there, you know? Um, and, you know, these are all things that, like, Radiohead could not have predicted when they made this record. And if you look at the lyrics to the record, I mean, the lyrics don't make any literal sense. I mean, they're not predicting things, you know? Like, I think some headline to a story about the book said, like, how Radiohead predicted the 21st century. I don't think they predicted anything. I think what they did was the way I've described it is like, if you, let's say you were a time traveler in the year 2000 and you went 20 years ahead of time and you grabbed an object off the shelf in the year 2020, and then you went back to 2000 and you just put it down in front of someone and said, this is from the future. I'm not going to explain what it is. You need to figure it out. I think that's what kid a was like. It was of the future. It was like you know, in the future, you're going to hear bits of data that are disconnected from, from context, and they're just going to be spit at you all day long. You know, yesterday I woke up sucking a lemon. You know, the best you can is good enough. You know, uh, you know, this is really happening. You know, this isn't happening. You know, all these things like tweets or Facebook status updates or Instagram posts that I think to a 2000 mentality just seem like chaos. But to our mentality in 2020, there's a logic to it because we're surrounded by chaos constantly. I mean, that's what the media is now. And they somehow were able to um, intuit that or, or to, I think, unintentionally, maybe in a way, make this record that would have the feel of like what life would be like now. And it wasn't necessarily like that in 2000. Right. Once again, the book is This Isn't Happening, Radiohead's Kid A and the Beginning of the 21st Century. My guest has been Stephen Hyden. Stephen, you've been, you've been super uh, generous with your time. I've realized I've already gone over uh, the 45 minutes I told you we would talk, so I appreciate you staying on for the last, uh, the last few minutes here. Um, I would love to end a little bit just with one, one line that, uh, since we are on, on uh, uh, a radio station here in Brooklyn, uh, there is a line from Twilight of the Gods that I... Uh, you know, underlined and circled and everything again and again. It's very early in the book where you talk about because kind of the virtues of radio and the line is, I miss the storm chasing aspect of radio where you keep on listening through the commercials and the bum tracks and the annoying patter by crummy jocks because you're hoping to catch another bolt of lightning. I just thought that line was awesome and I wanted to end with it there for you. Well, thank you. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the magic of radio. You know, uh I think especially that for, for me then, because there were so many songs I'd never heard. And that was, the radio was the way to hear them. You know, uh, you know, thinking specifically of like classic rock radio, 
you know, like there was a moment. I remember this very clearly the first time I heard Gimme Shelter by the Rolling Stones. And this was an era like when I would tape songs off the radio a lot. Because, um, again, like, this is this is like 1990. So, you know, the only way to get songs was to buy a CD or maybe a single or something. But, you know, you couldn't download songs or anything. So if you just like wanted one song, you have to tape it off the radio. And I remember listening to like the classic rock station in my bedroom and that riff came on from Gimme Shelter. And I'd never heard it before, but I just instinctively hit the record button because it just, I was like, what the hell is this? It's like, I don't know what this song is, but like this riff is so cool. I, I feel like this is going to be a great song. So I'm just going to start recording it. And, uh, you know, so, and I still remember that, you know, like 30 years later. I mean, that was pretty incredible. Um, so yeah, that, that's always a great thing. And I think you can still get that now, especially, you know, with a radio station like yours, where you guys are going to be exploding the format, you know, and doing something different. There's always the chance of being surprised with, with a radio station like that. So that's, that's always exciting. Yeah. I can't think of a better note to end it on. Stephen Hyden, once again, thanks so much for coming on. Again, the book is This Isn't Happening, uh, and it's out everywhere now. Uh, thanks so much for talking. Really appreciate it. Hi, this is Jimmy. Well, that's the end of the music, but it's not the end of the show. For those of you computer literate parrot heads out there, stick this CD into your computer, and you can see an enhanced video of what we do and what we say backstage behind the scenes.